may be seated. Well, have you ever tried to change before? You ever tried to change you know, your diet or, or start a new work, workout program or like get into the gym or set a New Year's resolution? How many of you at some point in your life have tried to change something about you? Can you just raise your hands? Wow, okay, I sort of expected everyone. We I think all various points tried new things or tried to learn a new skill or tried to learn a new habit or tried to change something about your personality that you're just like, ah, this is so annoying. You know, change is really hard. Uh, we're now into March where probably by this point, if you had a New Year's resolution, um, that, that, that bandwagon, you, you've fallen off that wagon a long, long, long way ago and uh, kind of back to what you were doing before. Maybe, maybe you're continuing on with it. Maybe you're more disciplined than I am with some of those things. But change is hard. Whether we're talking about starting a new diet, learning a new skill, kicking a bad habit. And yet as we come to this section in Ephesians, this text that we read, the call here is really clear. God calls us as his people to walk in newness, to be different from what we were before. The Christian life is one of continually walking the path of change. It's one of continually saying goodbye to the old life of what we were before we met Jesus and embracing the new life. You pick up on the language that's used here where Paul says you're going to put off the old. It's, it's like changing a set of clothes. There's this radical transformation that is Christianity. This radical transformation that occurs when you become a believer in Jesus that continues on through the Christian life. Christianity is about change. Now, just to review where we are, the first few chapters of the book of Ephesians, Paul has laid out all the riches that we have in Christ. He says, blessed be God who has, who has given us every spiritual blessing in, in heavenly places in Christ. And he has chosen us and redeemed us and illuminated us and sealed us. And he has just lavished us with all the riches of the gospel, all the riches that Jesus purchased for us at the cross. We used to be dead, but now we're alive. We used to be on the outside, but he has made us one. And there's this amazing unity that he has made in the body of Christ between former enemies. We get into chapter 4. Chapter 4 is now calling us to live in light of that. Look in chapter 4, verse 1. Paul saying, I, I'm beseeching you that you would walk worthy of that calling. Like On one side, all the riches we have, when you become a believer, you get all of these riches in Christ, all of these spiritual blessings, this forgiveness, this unity, the, 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 this illuminated heart. He's saying, now live in accordance with that. This is what God has given you. Now live like it's true. Using the metaphor of riches, you have these riches put to your bank account. Now live like you're rich. Go out and buy stuff. Go out and live like that money is really there. Live like you have been radically changed by the gospel of Jesus. Live like you have been made new and you've been made one. And that worthy walk, as we have seen over the last couple of weeks, involves a walk of unity. Walking in accordance with the riches that God has given us in Christ is to walk in unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to enjoy real harmony within the family of God between people of different backgrounds and different ethnicities and different races. All of that is done away with in Christ. Now what Paul is going to get into is saying the worthy walk is going to involve a walk, a lifestyle of newness, of purity. Unity and purity. Newness and togetherness. Both of these go together. You know, holiness is not a popular word in any age, especially ours. You get a lot of people who want to talk about how you can have your best life now and how the Bible can sort of come alongside and, and be sort of a therapeutic guide as we go through life. 
But this idea of living a holy life that is distinct from the world and separated from sin, not a real popular message these days. And yet that's precisely what Paul is saying. Christians, those who are believers in Jesus, you've been changed. You don't walk in those same paths of sin that you used to walk in. You have been changed by the gospel, so live like it. God wants us as Christians to experience radical, lifelong change of constantly shedding the ways of sin and the paths of unrighteousness and becoming more like Jesus. You say, I have tried to change. Like, I've literally tried everything to try to change and get victory over sin in my life, and I've not been successful. I want to give you this morning five principles that, that are in this text that show us how we can experience real, radical, lifelong change in the Christian life. Change, beloved, is possible. And by the way, let me add this. Change is absolutely necessary. There is no Christian life without change. There is no going to heaven without change. The writer of Hebrews says this, Follow after holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. You've got to be holy if you're going to go to heaven. Now, that means in one part we are declared righteous by the gospel of Jesus, but it also means that there's going to be this proof in our lives of a changed life that shows we're really God's children. So that's necessary if you, if you are a Christian. So what are these principles? The first one I want to call this the regeneration principle. And by regeneration, I am referring to the fact that we don't just need to be made nice We need to be made new, right? There's got to be a foundational, fundamental change in our hearts and in our lives if we are going to experience this change. There's got to be a new heart. We've got to be born again to use Jesus' idiom from John chapter 3. Look in verses 17 to 19. Paul contrasts the way we're supposed to live with the way that we once were before we became Christians. So verse 17, this I say therefore. So he's saying, okay, the worthy walk, that involves unity. He's kind of wrapping up that discussion. So now he's saying... It's going to involve something else. I say this, therefore, and testify, or we could even render it this way, and insist in the Lord. This is not just a suggestion. This is a requirement. And Paul's not grounding this requirement just in, hey, Paul, I'm Paul. I've got some good ideas for you. He's like, I'm insisting in the Lord. This is God who is speaking. God who is addressing this. saying that you henceforth walk not as the Gentiles walk. The word Gentiles, he's not using that as just an ethnic term, like the non-Jews. He's talking about the pagan world in which the people in Ephesus lived. They'd been saved out of sort of pagan idolatry. They'd been saved out of this godless society. He says, you don't live like the other pagans do. You don't live like the world does. You don't, you don't shape your life based on the mold that the culture wants to shape it into. You walk, you live. Remember, walk is a metaphor for how we live our lives Monday through Saturday. This is the the, the essence of how we live, your lifestyle. You don't live as the Gentiles live, as the lost world lives. you're, You're different now. Now, he's going to go on and describe, saying, this is Christians, and by the way, this is the way all of us used to be. He says, I'm going to just remind y'all of what you were before you met Jesus. I'm going to remind you of the condition of our lost culture, of anyone who does not know Jesus. This is their condition. Notice how he describes it. In the vanity of their minds. Now, we often think of vanity as, oh, pompous and looking at the mirror all the time. The idea of this word is futility. The futility of their mindset. Now, he's not saying that they are intellectually dumb. 
the, the Roman world, you can go back and re- look at the Roman and the Greek world, there were some brilliant people like Aristotle and Plato and Cicero and Suetonius and all of these guys. They're really smart. So he's not saying Christians are smart and everyone else is dumb. That's not what he is saying. But he is saying the mindset, the worldview, is one of futility. Why? Because it does not take into account ultimate reality. Ultimate reality is God. And because God is not ruling over that mind, they might get a lot of things right. They might have a great understanding in philosophy and in science and in medicine, but God's not at the center of it. They don't understand where they've come from and where they're going and why they are here. He's saying that's who you are without Jesus. You're, without Jesus, you're, you're, your mind is mired in futility, which is why if we're going to change, we need to be regenerated. We need to be born again. We need a new heart and a new nature and a renewed mind. The unsaved mind is incapable of grasping spiritual truth, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14. Now, understand it intellectually, yes, but grasp it and receive it. No, he says we're not capable of that without a work of the Holy Spirit. Now he unpacks it even more in verse 18. Having the understanding darkened. So the mindset is futile. It's spinning in circles. It's not, it's not grasping onto ultimate joy and ultimate reality. Why the understanding is darkened. Romans 1 uses very similar language. That when people knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was what? Darkened. The understanding, your understanding without Jesus Christ, is spiritually dark. Again, you might understand a lot of things about this world and understand science and understand how to do your job and, and score very high on an IQ test. But spiritually speaking, your understanding is not able to put together the pieces of the puzzle and live out God's way. That's why change is impossible without a new heart. Without Christ, our understanding is enmeshed in darkness. And we are alienated from God's life. Verse 18 says, and we're alienated from the life of God. Okay, to be alienated from life is to be what? To be dead. Say, someone is separated from life. They don't have life. They're dead. We are spiritually dead, as as Ephesians 2 describes it. You know what dead people need? Not a funeral. Dead people need a resurrection. Those who are in the dark need the light switch to come on. Those who have hearts of stone need something to fundamentally change in their hearts. And last time I checked, we are incapable of doing heart surgery on ourselves. Okay, and I'm using that as a metaphor. We are incapable of changing our own nature, of giving ourselves a new heart, of giving ourselves a new nature. God must do that to us and for us. When I say the regeneration principle, change requires a new heart. It requires a new mind. It requires a new nature. And by the way, the grammar of verse 18 is saying this is not just some really bad people. It's not like, well, yeah, I'm thinking of like Osama bin Laden. That's, you know, he's like that. Every one of us. And this is not just sometimes. The grammar is making it clear that this is a state. Paul's using a really unusual structure here to say this is the continual state of being darkened, the continual state of being alienated, of living in futility, of being born and living and growing up and learning things and teaching things and doing things and then dying and that sort of being the whole point of your life. That's futility. That's tragic. Now, what's the cause of this? The end of verse 18 gives us the underlying cause. He said, well, did God make them that way? Is this really God's fault? No, look at where the, the, the blame is placed. The end of verse 18, this darkness and this alienation and this futility. Why? Why is it there? Because of the ignorance that is in them. 
So they're in darkness because there is this internal ignorance of spiritual truth, of divine truth. The cause of this condition is the ignorance that is in them. Now, you say, well, that doesn't seem to help because we tend to think that I didn't know is a valid excuse, right? Um, get pulled over for going 70 miles an hour down three-notch road. And you say, I didn't know the speed limit was only 40. And I think most people who drive on three-notch don't actually know that. Uh, I didn't know that's not going to actually get you out of the ticket because the sign it's posted everywhere. What you're really saying is I wasn't paying attention to any of the signs. So too with spiritual ignorance. It's not because the truth is unavailable. You walked outside this morning. There is proof that there is a God who exists and he's good. The fact that we're undergoing the changing seasons, that God was so good to us, he didn't just make us live in a place that was perpetual darkness, but where the sun rose this morning over the just and the unjust, and the season changed, and the weather is beautiful, and the sun is shining, and there is life, and there is new life, proof that there is a God. Listen, life does not come from non-life. Order does not come from chaos. This universe is a massive exhibit to the wisdom and the existence and the eternality of God. Romans 1. Since the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth by unrighteousness. The truth's there, but we're suppressing it and we're trying to ignore it and we don't want the truth to be true because if there's a God who created us, guess what? He gets to call the shots and not me. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. But in between that, the writer of Romans, Paul says this, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are what? Without excuse. What I'm saying is the ignorance of our hearts without Jesus, of I, I don't understand, I don't know what God wants of me, I don't know what the moral truth, is a culpable ignorance. It's the ignorance that says, I know the speed limit signs are there, but I want to shut my eyes because I don't want to see that I'm actually speeding. It's that kind of ignorance. So that they are without excuse. We go down further, you say, what's underlying even this ignorance? Why is it that people don't want to, the truth to be true? Look back in verse 18 of Ephesians 4. This chain of uh, causation goes because of the ignorance that's in them, because of what? The blindness of their hearts. Now that word blindness is not actually the term for blindness, it's the word for hardness. Um, Word, it even sounds like a medical word, porosis. It's this idea of being harder than stone. This idea of rejection and rebellion against God. So he's saying, okay, the, the way the, the lost world lives, the reason you've got to be regenerated if you're going to change is, well, there's this futility of the mind, there's this darkened understanding, there's this alienation from the life of God, and what's causing it? Culpable ignorance. What's causing the culpable ignorance? Hard-heartedness. We have hearts that because of our sin, reject God. Not just sometimes, all the time. Because of the hardness of the heart. Ignorance of the truth is the result of hardness of the heart. So God has revealed himself in the creation. God has revealed himself in our consciences. We have a sense of right and wrong. He's given us his word. The city is full of churches. There are stations on the radio declaring God's word. There's channels on the TV. There's an internet where you can go and Google and find the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't want it. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. John 3, verse 19. Here's the point. The, the, the condition, our condition without Jesus Christ, your condition if you're here today and you have not been born again, 
you're not trusting in Jesus, that's pretty hopeless. The change is not going to come from your own heart. Rather, your heart itself must be changed by a work of God. But that's not where the downward spiral ends. So hardness of our hearts leads to willful ignorance of truth, which leads to being alienated, which leads to darkness and futility. But now look at what verse 19 does this. Describing us without Jesus, who being past feeling, have given themselves under, over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. You notice that Paul started with the mind, and now he moves out to the life. Why does he do that order? Because... We would probably start the other way. Well, let's look at the losses of the world. Well, look at the depravity and the fornication and the murders and the abuse. And look, there's the evidence. But Paul's like, it's the other way. It starts with what we think. It starts with what we love. Here's something I want to say that's going to be very key to understanding this text. We do what we do because we think the way we think. We do what we do because we love what we love. And so Paul puts it in this order. Look, their minds are darkened, and therefore their lives are depraved. Which means this, if change is going to happen, the heart needs to change, right? And the thinking needs to change, and Paul's going to get there on on the positive side of the ledger. So look at the results of this darkness and uh, and of this lostness. They're being, they're, they're past feeling, verse 19 says. The idea here is being calloused. It's the idea of no longer feeling moral pain or shame. It's the idea of the conscience. You know, God's given all of us a conscience, but if you ignore the conscience long enough, after a while you don't feel the pain of conscience. It's like a nerve that has been cauterized. It's like the check engine light that you have fixed the problem by just turning off the check engine light, just being like, where's that fuse? Pull it out. Problem's gone. It's like the pilots. There, there are literally stories of pilots who have crashed their planes into the side of a mountain because they decided that the, the ground radar system was wrong that was telling them, pull up, pull up. They just hit the switch and ran the plane into the side of the mountain. That's what happens to our consciences. God's given us his consciences. This is sin, and you ignore it, you ignore it, and eventually the conscience stops beeping the alarm. The conscience stops displaying the check engine light. It says the lost, the lost world... They get to this place where they no longer feel moral pain. And what do they do? They give themselves over to sin. Now, there's this big word, lasciviousness, which... Did anybody use this in their conversation last week? Okay, this is not a normal word that we use. This is a, uh, a term I don't know. We, we read it, like sounds like something really bad. The result of the calloused conscience is unrestrained lust. We can define it this way. It is this lack of self-constraint which involves one in conduct that violates all bounds of what is socially acceptable. It is self-abandonment. That's what that word lasciviousness means. I just handed myself over to do whatever my heart wants. You know, the irony of our world is everybody is talking about liberation and freedom. It was like the women's liberation movement, and then there was the, you know, the sexual revolution, and all these ways where people are, we're going to be free from constraints. What happened is you simply traded, instead of society calling the shots of what, what is acceptable, now you're a slave to your own desires. It's still slavery, right? You think, I'm free to do whatever I want, and the things that I want to do are self-destructive. Now, this is interesting. You parallel this with Romans 1. And Romans 1 says the result of people forgetting and ignoring and rejecting God is God gives them over to the, their own desires. And here, Paul is saying it's the sinner who gives themselves over. You're like, well, which is it? The answer is both. When God gives someone over to their own desires in an act of judgment, he's simply giving them over to something that they really already want. That's a scary, scary place to be. 
I think we can see this in our society. Don't let society tell you that something's wrong. You know, let it go. Nobody's going to tell me what, I, what I'm going to do. I'm going to just be true to myself. That's this idea of lasciviousness, just reckless abandonment and rejection of morality. You say, well, thankfully, I've not done that. I thank you that I'm not as other men are. We all do this in different ways. We may not be as blatant about it, but this is the nature of sin. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. It doesn't matter what God says. It doesn't matter what society says. It doesn't matter what my spouse says. It doesn't matter what my conscience says. So they give themselves over. Why to work all uncleanness, all kinds of uncleanness? So this is talking about sexual immorality. This is talking about fornication. This is talking about, I'm just going to live with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. I'm going to sleep with whoever I want. Watch what I want. Work uncleanness. And then it says, with greediness. We understand what greed is, if like I want more money. The idea here is of with, uh, insatiability, insatiable lust. You realize this? God made the human heart for glory. God made us in, our, in his image to know him, to be filled with infinite glory and joy. And when we turn away from that, our hearts will latch onto something else to try and find that. All of us have hearts that have attached themselves to something that they are worshiping and trying to find that joy and that glory from. It's all addiction is. So some people chase after sex for that. Other people chase after money. Other people chase after popularity. Some people chase after sort of moral appearances of, I'm going to look really good and have everybody think that I'm a great person. It's the same underlying condition of worshiping something other than the Creator. To work all in cleanliness with, with greediness, with this insatiability. You don't know, see the point here? If we're going to walk in newness, we've got to be born again. And by the way, the first key to being born again is realizing that you need to be born again. Some people say, well, I get that stuff about new, the new birth, but go preach that in the prison. Right? Go to the, some of the sketchy parts of Mobile. They, they really need that message. Not me. You know, Jesus, when Jesus said, you must be born again, he was not speaking to a murderer in a prison. He wasn't speaking to someone who was engaged in an immoral relationship. He was speaking to what we would call today a Bible scholar or even a pastor. He was speaking to a guy who was really, really religious. Perhaps the most predominant form of idolatry in our world today is religiosity. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to be a nice person. I'm going to be a moral person, and that's going to somehow get me to heaven. We need a new heart. If you're here today and you've never been born again, you've never experienced that kind of transformation, how does it happen? Jesus goes on to say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Repenting, believing in Jesus Christ. That's the path of experiencing and receiving this new birth, this new nature. So the first principle to experiencing real, lasting, lifelong, fundamental change is the regeneration principle. If you came here today saying, cool, I want to just get the Bible, how I can sort of get the principles about how to change without Jesus, you came to the wrong place today, right? It's only going to happen through Jesus coming and giving us a new heart. The result of this is we actually become a new person. Verse 24 says, you have put on the new man. Like When you become a Christian, it's like you become a new person. That's what is required, a resurrection, a new creation, becoming a new person created according to God. God's the one who does it. That's what it says, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. That's what the new birth is, God giving us a brand new nature. Without the new birth, yeah, you can probably kick some bad habits. There are plenty of people who have gone through a 12-step program, 
and have been able to defeat habits like alcohol addiction and drug addiction. There's been people who've been mired in immoral relations who've been able to kind of clean up their act without Jesus. But at the bottom of the heart, the heart has not been changed. Without a new birth, those changes are cosmetic. They're like putting a coat of paint on a vehicle that needs a new engine. Those changes, while we can appreciate them, are the equivalent of putting makeup onto a corpse. The new birth says, we're not going to just put some makeup on the corpse or some paint on the car. We're going to get a new engine in that. We're going to give a resurrection. That's the, the level of change that must happen. That's the regeneration principle. But once you've been regenerated, Paul is speaking to people who, he's saying, you used to be this, but you're not. You've, you've experienced the new birth. So let me direct my comments to those who are Christians. How do I experience change? Here's the second principle. I'm going to call it the reality principle. The reality principle. Verse 20. Listen to Paul's voice. Listen just to the the force of this. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. The force of this in verses 20 and 21 is that's not who you are anymore. Okay, verses 17, 18, and 19, that's what you were before Jesus. But you're not that anymore. When you came to faith in Jesus, something radical changed in your life. Your identity changed, your standing changed, your position changed. And that's not just sort of wishful thinking. That's reality. Too many Christians still find their identity in their sin. Too many Christians, rather than seeing my fundamental identity is I'm in Christ and I'm alive. And yes, I'm fighting sin. Listen, none of us will ever be sinlessly perfect this side of glory. We get that. But think about how different it is to say, in Christ I am holy and I am forgiven and I am chosen and I am redeemed and I am washed. And sin is contrary to who I am in Jesus and I'm going to go to war with it with all my heart. Think about how different that posture is than saying, well, I'm just a sinner. And I'm just going to sin, and there's nothing I can do about it, and this is just sort of my identity, and I'm just going to sort of wallow in that sin. Too many Christians are content to wallow and find identity in sin, rather than saying my identity is in Christ, and I'm going to fight that sin as something contrary to who I am. There's a, a push today for people to use the moniker gay Christian. I'm a, I'm a gay Christian. Now, I want to be very clear. God saves people who are mired in the sin of homosexuality. 1 Corinthians 6 is really clear about that. You're washed. That's not who you are anymore. You're changed. God can and does save people who are mired in that sin. And there's no guarantee that God takes away immediately every desire you have for sin. We all know that. We still have desires for sin. I could be a Christian who is going to war against sinful desires for someone of the same sex. But that's a very different attitude than saying, I am a gay Christian. Like, this is my identity, and God's cool with it. We wouldn't say, I'm a lying Christian, and God's cool with it. We wouldn't say, I'm an adultering Christian, and God's cool with it, or I'm a fornicating Christian. and God. But how often do we do that with other sins as well? I hear people say, well, I'm just a man. I'm just a guy. And so I'm just going to struggle with lust. You know what you're saying at that point? Well, the sin is really who I am, and the gospel hasn't really changed who I am. Listen, you can be a Christian who struggles with lust. You can be a Christian who struggles with same-sex desires. You can be a Christian who is going to war against these desires and these patterns of sin in your life. 
But we're only going to be able to change if I come against sin from a standpoint of saying, in reality, you have not so learned Christ. In reality, I've been fundamentally changed, and the sin is contrary to who I am. Getting victory over sin is not becoming who I'm not. Getting victory over sin is becoming who I am. If God said, you're holy in my sight, me getting victory over that sin is simply becoming what I already am in Christ. You see how different that perspective is? That's the reality principle. It's one thing to say I'm a Christian who's going to war against sin versus saying I'm a Christian who is this sin. The former has the, has the hope and the promise of victory over sin. The latter, if you say this is who I am, you've already lost the battle. So notice the school of Christ. When you became a Christian, you were enrolled in school. Oh man, I graduated and I don't want to go back to school. Christianity is enrollment in a school. Notice verse 20, you have not so learned Christ. So be you have heard him, you have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. We get the curriculum. You know what the curriculum is in the school of Christ? This reality that we have, we have entered into? The curriculum is Christ. We don't just learn about Jesus, we learn Jesus. You have not so learned Christ. That's reality. We have been transformed and we've been enrolled in the, in the, in the school of Christ. Again, we cannot divorce Christian transformation from who Jesus is. We can't just say, well, let me just sort of extract these principles and then we can sort of apply them generally to people who don't love Jesus. That's not Christianity. Christianity has Jesus at the center of it. What is Christianity? It's about Jesus and his miraculous incarnation as the God-man. It's Jesus who lived a sinless life. It's Jesus who died a substitutionary death in the place of sinners. It's Jesus who had a victorious resurrection. It's Jesus who has ascended to the glory of the right hand of the Father. And it's Jesus who's coming again in glory. That's what we learn. We learn Christ. And not just the truth about him, but who he is. Take my yoke and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's not just learning about Christ, it is learning Christ. It is to become, the, the, the word here translated learned in verse 20 is the word that we could translate discipled. You become a disciple, a pupil, someone who learns with the goal of imitating the teacher. We, we have this idea today where you kind of learn just to get the information from the teacher. In the ancient world, you learned so you could live the life of the teacher. Enrolled in the school of Christ, we are there to learn and be more and more like Jesus. And it's a lifelong, it's not just 12 years, you know, not just 12 grades, and, and then you go on maybe to college. Or, no, this is lifelong. There's as many grades as there are years in your life. So the content of the Christian message is not mere morality. Do not hear me saying today, you need to change, try harder. No, what I'm saying today is you can only change with a new heart, and you can only change when you've embraced the reality of who Jesus is, and you've been enrolled in the school of Christ. So he's the curriculum, but verse 21 also tells us that he's the teacher. If so be, and the idea here is Paul saying, of course you have, I'm assuming that this is true. Assuming, of course, that you have heard him and been taught by him. When you hear the word of God, Think about who told you about Jesus when you became a Christian. What was so-and-so? Was a Sunday school teacher or a parent or a friend, a pastor who opened the Bible? When the Word of God is taught and spoken, we are hearing the very voice and Word of God. The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. 
That's not to say that anyone who stands behind a pulpit and starts yelling is saying what God wants them to say. But when this book is rightly declared, it has the authority of heaven. We hear within the Bible the very voice of God himself. And so Paul's saying that when you were converted, you enrolled in the school of Christ. He's the curriculum, but he was also the teacher. He's the message and the messenger. He's the focus. But then we go on, we find out he's also the standard. When you're in school, remember there's standards. We call those things tests to like, did you learn anything? You know, did you get an A? Okay, the, the, the standard here is not the traditional A to F grading scale that 90% or above, you got an A. No, look at the standard of this. You've been taught in, in accordance with the standard as the truth is in Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of truth. All true doctrine has Christ at its center. So when we're talking about the fall of man, that's pointing us to Jesus. When we're talking about God's love, it's expressed in Jesus. Jesus is the narrative center of the Bible. He is the center of gravity for all Christian truth. If Jesus is not at the center of it, it's not Christian. So the implications here. Real change means embracing the reality principle. If you are a believer in Jesus, you've enrolled in the school of Christ, which means lifelong transformation and learning and becoming more like him. But that's who you are now. Your fundamental identity is different. So don't fight sin as, oh, this is who I am. Fight sin as contrary to who I am. And if you're saying, I want to find out who I really am in Christ, read Ephesians, all the places that say in him, in Christ, in Jesus, in the Lord. That's saying who you are. You're in union with Jesus. You're accepted in the beloved. You're chosen in him, redeemed in him, enlightened in him, sealed in him. And we could go on and on and on. Now, verses 22, 23, and 24 have these phrases, put off, be renewed, put on. And the way it sort of reads in our English translation is those are commands where Paul's like, you need to do these things. But the way this actually comes off in the original is you were taught to put off, to be renewed, to put on. He's referring back to something that's already happened. He's saying, when you were converted, the old man, the old life was set to the side like a filthy garment. The new life, the new man, the new nature was put on as a new identity. And you began this process of a lifelong transformation, renewal of the mind. So why does Paul remind them of this? Because the rest of the Christian life is living out these implications. Right, there's something fundamental, fundamentally changed when you became a Christian. Now the rest of the Christian life is becoming who you are. That's a good working definition of what we call sanctification. Becoming who you are. So I want to break these down into three more principles. We have this idea, you, you put off the, the old man. All right, you put off this old lifestyle when you became a Christian. Yet the rest of the Christian life is continuing to put away the vestiges of what that's like. I'm going to call this the rejection principle. Real change... Progressively, as a Christian, is putting away, rejecting the sin and the evil in your life. Okay, that seems like really obvious. Like, well, duh, I want victory over sin. Got to get rid of the sin in my life. If I want to change, I got to get rid of the bad things in our lives. And we often think of change only in those categories. Is removal, is that which is sort of negative. But I'll just remind you, he's going to give us the positive in verse 24, the put on. These go together. So there's a couple of things we need to hold together here. This idea of putting off is referring back to the decisive break that already happened when you were born again. The old nature, the old man was forever done, was forever removed. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's reality. 
We've already changed sides in the war. We've already come from the old to the new. We've already been transformed from death to life. And from there, we spend the rest of our days putting away the remnants of sin in our lives until we reach heaven. If you think this morning, I've arrived. There's no more sin to deal with in my life. I'm just sort of in maintenance mode. Check your heart again. Take a look again. The closer you get to God, the more intolerable sin should should be. The closer you get to God, the more you see the gap in your life between what you know and where you're at. Isn't it true that we are? you can always learn something faster than you can implement it into your life? So we could all go and enroll for like a week-long class over at Planet Fitness about dieting. I don't know if they do stuff like that over there. I know they do like pizza nights and stuff. But let's say they did. And you go for a week, you could learn a whole lot about dieting. And here's what begins to happen. Every class you go to, the gap between what you know about dieting and your ability to actually follow the diet expands. That gap becomes bigger. Because it takes a little while to implement those changes in our lives. The same thing happens in the Christian life. The further on you go, the more you know of what God's will is, what he expects of you. But it takes a little longer to implement that in our lives. And so it can sometimes feel in the Christian life, I'm not growing. Because what I know is outpacing what I'm able to implement in my life. Don't be discouraged if that's the case. That's just the way that knowledge and growing works. But don't deceive yourself into thinking there is no gap. There's always going to be a gap between what I know and what I'm implementing, and our goal is to close that in our hearts and in our lives. So I think Paul's reminding them, you've put off concerning the former conversation. Okay, that word conversation is lifestyle. You've put off that old lifestyle that's in reference to the old man. And then he says the old man is corrupt according to his deceitful lust. Notice how he contrasts that with the new man in verse 24. Okay, the old life, um, and we've got the new life, verses 22 and verses 24. Verse 22, the, the old life is being corrupted, being brought to destruction. The new man is created by God. The old life is corrupt in regards to lusts. The new life, the new man is being created in regards to righteousness and holiness. The old is being shaped by deceit, and the new is being shaped by truth. There's a contrast between deceit and truth, between life and uh, between between corruption and creation, between the old and the new. So the Christian life, from the moment you get saved, is one of perpetual repentance, of becoming aware of sin and confessing it and forsaking it, being aware of sin and pushing it out of our lives, becoming aware of that which is displeasing to God and removing it from us. The language here is the language of changing clothes. So let's say you have to go out and clean the septic tank. That'd be pretty rough. Um, I wouldn't want to do that. I'd probably hire someone to do it. But let's say you had to do it. Take that, that lid off and get down in there. It's pretty nasty, like dirty jobs, right? Um, that's, that, that, that's nasty. You're probably never wanting to wear those clothes ever again. They're probably getting put into a bag and into the trash or set on fire when you're done. Saying that's the, that's the old life. It's been removed. But we're going on getting the rest of the stench off our bodies So what kind of things are we to put away? Look at verses 25 to 32 for a sampling. Wherefore, putting away lying, there's one thing we're to put away, speak truth. Verse 26, be angry and sin not, so put away unproductive anger. Verse 28, let him that stole steal no more, so put away stealing of every kind. Verse 29, let no corrupt communication, so foul language, put that aside. Verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. You hear the repetition of that word put off? 
So you're going to put, on, put away unforgiveness and bitterness and anger and hatred and filthy speaking and lying and anger and stealing and greed. All of that, those are all the kinds of things that need to be put away. Chapter 5 continues. Verse, uh, Ephesians 5, verse 3. Fornication, sexual immorality, and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not once be named among you as become a saint. That's a pretty good list to start working on. The kinds of things that are displeasing to God. Sexual immorality, lying, stealing. All of these things put out of our lives, not just transformed into less obnoxious forms. That's what we're good at is, well, I'll just make sin something that's sort of in a corner of my life that nobody notices, and it's, it's going to be less egregious. Instead of being addicted to heroin, I'll just be addicted to alcohol. It's a little less bad, a little less destructive. We do that in so many ways. Instead of telling, like, bald-faced lies, I'll just sort of resort to exaggerations. No, 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 God's not interested in us just making our sin be less socially unacceptable. He wants it gone, cut out of our lives. Every day, Christian, we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Every day there is to be a reckoning in your heart of sin that is contrary to God and a confession and a rejection. And you might have to confess the same sin over and over again. There may be a continual, God, help me today to fight this. Bring brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ into the fight. Accountability, radical amputation. To get that sin out. Every day we go to war. Every day we confess. Every day we must deny our sinful desires. Every day we must say no to even the most natural feeling urges that go against God's word. So there's a rejection principle. An ongoing thing. But verse 23 gives us this fourth principle. And I'm going to call this the renewal principle. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Now, the put off and the put on, the way those are conveyed by Paul, is those of, okay, in in a sense, that's sort of decisive that happened when you got saved and you're living out the implications of it. But this be renewed is a be continually renewed in the spirit of your mind. I'm going to call this the renewal principle. Now, I said earlier in the message, remember Paul uh, sketched out why the lost world is the way it is? They have depraved lives. Why? Because they have darkened minds. We do what we do because we think the way that we think. We do what we do because we love what we love. The same applies with positive transformation. If you want to change what you do, you need to change what you think. And I think a lot of our attempts at change fail because we don't get that principle. We say, well, I gotta stop the, you know, I gotta stop using foul language. So we sort of make a list of, here's ten words I'm just not going to say anymore, and I'm going to try really hard, and whenever I say them, I'm going to slap myself in the face and be like, don't say that anymore. Where what we need to do is change the mindset, change the heart that wants to utter those kinds of language, those kinds of words. You see the difference? One is just trying to address behavior. You can do behavior modification without Jesus. Right? The various psychologists did stuff with lab rats and, and whatnot. You can change behavior without Jesus. But the kind of change that we need is change that is not from the outside in, but from the inside out. The kind of change we're talking about is not just going and getting a bunch of rules from a spiritual guru who's like, try really hard to follow these 15 things. It is changing the way that we think. Paul puts it this way in Romans 12. He says, be transformed. Okay, complete transformation of your life. How? By the renewing of your mind. The way that we experience transformation in the Christian life is not by try harder, try harder, try harder, more rules, more rules. It's by changing 
what we think and how we think. That gets us start when we're saved. One of the things that happens when you get saved is you repent, you change your mind, and it goes continually through the Christian life as, we, as our minds are continuously shaped by exposure to God's truth. Now, you say, okay, that, that means I need to get more Bible. Yes, definitely, more Bible. But you ever done this where you're like, hey, this year I'm going to read more Bible, so every day you're like, for 15 minutes I'm going to just read the Bible. And you read it, and you, you're like, hey, I'm going to read through the Bible. We're in Deuteronomy. By the way, come back tonight. We've got Bible Q&A time. And come back tonight. We have, uh, we're going to be studying the book of Deuteronomy. You read the Bible in the morning, and then boom, you close it. And then you set it aside, and you forget it, and your mind goes back to thinking the way it was thinking before. Has anybody experienced that before? How do we get God's truth from just being something that we read to something that shapes the way we think? Psalm 1, I think, gives us part of the answer. It talks about the one who is blessed, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Now, meditation is not sitting around going, hmm, like emptying your mind. Biblically, meditation is thinking about Scripture. It's reading about the Bible and then developing the discipline to say, I'm not just going to read it. I'm going to chew on it. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to have this be what's filling my mind. Now, I don't know if this is true for, like, my wife's pretty good at multitasking. Um, we men are terrible at multitasking. We can, we can think about and work on precisely one thing at a time, um, which at least means for us men, if you're thinking about the Bible, you're not thinking about other stuff, right? That means that if I'm chewing on God's word, there's not room in my brain for sinful thoughts to be coming in. That's pretty cool how that works. But here's what happens. As I begin to meditate on God's word, God's word begins to sort of cut channels in my mind that, that my thoughts begin to flow through. The more I think the Bible, the more I read it and then chew on it and think on it and fill my mind with it, yeah, the more I'm pushing out all the garbage that I could be thinking about, but the more my mind is being shaped to be shaped by the Bible. So be renewed in the spirit of your mind is this internal and the deepest part of your, your being being transformed the way we think. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways by taking heed thereto according to thy word, saturating and filling our minds with the Bible. Now, I'm not saying that this just means you read a Bible verse, it's like a magic bullet where I don't struggle with sin anymore. But it does mean I'm not just going to wait until the temptation comes. I want my mind to be so shaped by the Bible that when the temptation comes, the response is biblical. That's what we're talking about, real change, being renewed in your heart. Every sin you struggle with has at its root some lie that you believe. Every sin you struggle with has at its root some lie you believe. You know how we defeat lies? With the truth, with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You say, I, I gossip. Okay, why do you gossip? Because gossip is fun and it feels good. Why is it fun and why does it feel good? It's because it makes me feel that I'm better than other people. Why do I need to feel better than other people? Because deep down I feel the need to justify myself. What's the lie that I'm believing? I'm not believing that God has truly declared me righteous in Christ. I've got to prove it myself by running other people down. It's a lie that I'm believing. Why do, why do I lust? Why is someone engaged in, in, in sexual immorality? Is because deep down I'm not finding my ultimate, ultimate satisfaction in God and I'm believing the lie that sin, sin will somehow satisfy. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds by... Meditating and chewing on God's truth. 
But we come to the final principle, and I'm going to call this the replacement principle. We kind of looked at verse 24 already with the regeneration and contrasting it with the, the rejection. But notice he says, put on the new man. Okay, that happened when you got saved. Which after God, okay, according to God, in accordance like God is being created. So God's the one who is remaking us, and he's the measure into which we are being remade. Be ye holy as I the Lord am holy is being created in righteousness and holiness, literally the holiness that comes from the truth. We put on a new man, which is who we are already in Christ. We've touched on that. We become a new creation of which God is the agent. Sin's dehumanizing and distorting power is being rolled back. What Adam lost in the fall, God is restoring in Christ. Now, practically... If you're going to experience real change, it's not enough just to say, I'm going to stop doing X. It's not going to work because nature abhors a vacuum, right? Something else will come into that place. Into that place. Jesus talks about the demons. He says, you know, if you just kick a demon out, demon wanders around, and then he comes back and finds the house swept and clean, and he brings all of his other demon buddies, and the end state of that man is worse than the beginning. It's not enough to just remove some particular sin from your life. What God calls us to is to replace that with righteousness. That's why we get this model, wherefore putting away lying, verse 25, speak every man truth. So it's not enough to say, I'm going to quit lying. You've got to replace that lying with a positive declaration of the truth. So I'm going to quit, I'm going to, I'm going to quit being addicted to, to alcohol or to some drug or to whatever that is that's captured your heart. It's not enough to say, I'm going to just say no. You've got to replace that with its opposite, with the positive good that God's word lays out for us. It's not enough to get rid of bad habits. We'll only experience lasting change when we actively replace evil with good, the old with the new, sin with righteousness. Where chapter 5 goes, you, you, you defeat sexual sin not by just saying, I'm going to stop it, but by replacing it with selfless sacrifice. I'm going to defeat stealing with generosity. I'm going to go to war against foul language by saying, I'm, not only, I'm going to use language that builds people up. I'm going to defeat selfishness by serving other people. So how do we change? It requires a new nature. That's the regeneration principle. It requires a new identity. Like, who am I? That's the reality principle. It requires this, this, this new birth, this change that then fuels the rejection principle, just pushing the sin out, driving it out, putting it to death. The renewal principle, not just the outside, but the inside. And not just negative rules, but positive replacement. To me, this is incredibly hope-giving. And maybe some of you here today, you have kind of given up on saying, well, I have struggled with the same sin for 40 years always struggle with gossip or with lying or with lust, and I've just accepted it. If you're a Christian, my plea with you is don't accept it. Go to war against it. We have the power. We have the resources we need in Christ. And if you're here today, and this first principle hasn't happened in your life, you're like, I've never come to faith in Christ and him alone to save me. I've just been trying my whole life to try to measure up, and I've never quite made it. The result's just been like this agonizing guilt and shame and fear and anxiety of, I've always got to prove that I'm 
Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus with your sin. Come to Jesus in repentance. Cast yourself on the one who died for you and paid the penalty for your sin and rose again so you could have new life. Trust in him today.